Last time we spoke about the ongoings of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Mao Zedong's 4th Army faced off against the IJA in the western Hubei area, causing significant casualties to both sides. The engagement was a mixed one, with both sides claiming victory, and it seems it was a tactical draw in the end. Over in the Solomons, Admiral Halsey had fixated his eyes on Munda, and this prompted him to perform a naval bombardment of it and Villa Stanmore. Some very unlucky Japanese aboard two destroyers ran right into the Americans en route to bombard the airstrips, and this led to a terrible defeat at the Battle of Blackett Strait. The small and short battle showcased the Japanese were being bled dry, and things were only going to continue to get worse for the Empire of the Rising Sun. But today we are venturing back to Burma to talk about the Chindits, so grab your onions. This episode is Operation Longclaw. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on lesser-known aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. I just want to take a few seconds to say thank you to everyone who has already signed up. It really means a lot to me. Over there, you can get early access to all of my content. You can vote on subjects I should pursue in the future. And of course, there is exclusive content in the form of podcasts. So if there's something you want to hear more about that you think I can't cover here or on other projects I'm associated with, well, go check out my Patreon or let me know at the Pacific War Channel Discord, or you can catch me at the Kings and General Discord server as well. A few weeks ago, we began a story about Wingate and the Chindits. The first task given to the Chindits was Operation Longcloth, which Wingate did not really like as a title because it didn't hold this grandiose kind of thing that he sought. Now, a major rationale for Operation Longcloth was to help relieve some pressure from places like Fort Hertz, the last remaining British outpost left in Burma. Fort Hertz was around 60 miles south of the Chinese border, manned by Karen Levies, and was on the brink of collapse. The fort was maintained as an outpost, originally by the Mikinya Battalion. But after the Japanese pushed the Allies out of Burma, it began to see many retreating Allied troops who would continuously garrison it. The military authorities within India, however, had no direct contact with the fort during most of the summer of 1942. Luckily for the Allies, the Japanese did not continue their advance towards the northern Burmese border most likely because they did not believe an allied outpost could be maintained in such a remote place. To get a picture of what the hell was going on at the fort, the 153rd Gurkha Indian Parachute Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel James Owen Marion Roberts, which is a long name, 
were parachuted into Upper Burma to investigate the state of the Makinya area on July the 3rd of 1942. Alongside this, on August the 12th of 1942, Major Hopkins of the 50th Indian Parachute Battalion overflew Fort Hertz and discovered unexpectedly that it was still in British hands. Lieutenant Colonel Roberts had reached the fort some days prior and figured out that the landing strip near the fort was still usable. The Fort Hertz airstrip served as an emergency landing strip for aircraft flying over the hump to get supplies into China. The same airstrip was naturally also a supply line for Fort Hertz. The day after the discovery of the usable airstrip was made, a party led by Captain G.E.C. Newland of the 153rd Indian Parachute Battalion dropped into Fort Hertz with engineering supplies, and they quickly went to work repairing the airstrip. By the 20th, the airstrip was fully functional, and Lieutenant Colonel Gamble was sent to be the new commander of the area followed by a company of the 7th and 9th JAT Regiment. A special force was created called the Northern Ketchin Levies. They were made up of members of the Ketchin people, under the command of British officers. Originally, Colonel Gamble was their leader, and they helped various British Indian Army units in the area to engage the Japanese and rally the locals to their cause. Now, way back at the beginning of the war, Chiang Kai-shek sought to construct a road from Lido to Assam, and that would cut through the mountains, forests, rivers, and northern Burma to link up with the Burma Road at Lungling on the Chinese side. This was to be a colossal amount of work. Chiang Kai-shek estimated it would be built in about five months, while Stilwell's teams of experts believed it would take 2.5 years. The British were wary about the Lido Road because it destroyed their private shipping monopoly by allowing the Chinese direct access to India. However, Washington forced them to accept it, despite Britain trying to obstruct its construction by claiming they would perform an amphibious assault to recapture Rangoon, to reopen its road to China. Wavell argued that even if the Lido Road was complete, it would be too costly to maintain. But Washington was adamant about it, so they took full responsibility for its construction and cost. And honestly, if you read between the lines as to what I just said, the British were acting like dicks, still trying to hold on to every single little piece of their empire. I mean, they were worried a transportation road for supplies from Rangoon wouldn't be used in the future because this road was being built. A road being built for one of their allies during a time of war. Anyways, for those who might be a bit more interested in the hardship of the Allies' relationship with China during the war, there is a very famous book called Ally Forgotten by Rana Mitter. I can't recommend it enough. It's one of my favorite books about the uh, Second Sino-Japanese War. The Lido Road would be agonizingly slow to construct. It would take all of 1943 for the road to just cut from Lido to Assam to Xinbingwang in Burma, just 103 miles in all. And this was not surprising at all. It consisted of 100,000 cubic feet of earth that had to be removed along a track that ran as high as 4,500 feet over the Patka Range through some very thick jungle. The workforce consisted of 15,000 United States troops, of which 60% were African-American, and 35,000 locals. Sir Winston Churchill famously described the Lido Road as, quote, A road that would be open only when there was no longer any need for it. 
Chenault likewise was eager to do anything to increase his funding for his air forces in China, and he began to argue that the road used up precious resources that would never provide the 65,000 tons of supply over the hump that his pilots could deliver. A lot of the Allied analysts crunched the numbers and they agreed with Chenault. And even General Slim added his agreement to the matter, stating they should better focus on simply retaking Burma by military means, and thus the road to China would be open. General Slim actually had a lot to say in the matter, and he wrote this. I agree with Stilwell that the road could be built. I believe that, properly equipped and efficiently led, Chinese troops could defeat the Japanese if, as should be the case with his Lido force, they had considerable numerical superiority. On the engineering side, I had no doubts. We had built roads over a country as difficult and with much less technical equipment than the Americans would have. Thus far, Stilwell and I were in complete agreement, but I did not hold two articles of his faith. I doubted the overwhelming war-winning value of this road, and, in any case, I believed it was starting from the wrong place. The American amphibious strategy in the Pacific of hopping from island to island would, I was sure, bring much quicker results than an overland advance across Asia with a Chinese army yet to be formed. In any case, if the road was to be really effective, its feeder railway should start from Rangoon, not Calcutta. Some good critique and good arguments from General Slim, although I will point out at the very end the point about having it come from Rangoon rather than Calcutta that's an interesting point to make, especially from someone from Britain who doesn't have, well, any reasons why that should be. Regardless, the Lido Road was built, all 1,072 miles of it. And back in December of 1942, the 45th American Engineer Regiment and the 823rd Aviation Battalion, two African-American units, arrived to begin the first segment of the colossal project, connecting Lido to Hukawang Valley. To build these 103 miles had the men led by Major General Raymond Wheeler braving the difficult Pangsao Pass of 3,727 feet before dropping 7 feet to Ximbingwangyang. By January the 20th of 1943, construction was being done on a 24-hour basis at a rate of 3 quarters of a mile a day. By February the 18th, Wheeler was given command of the defense of the Lido sector, and despite Wavell's engineer-in-chief giving a skeptical estimate that the next 45 miles of the road would only be done by March the 1st, on February the 28th, they crossed the Burmese border. Meanwhile, the 18th Division, led by General Mutaguchi Renya, was given the responsibility of defending northern Burma. General Mutaguchi was a victor of the Singapore campaign. In fact, the 18th Division was something of an elite division having fought in China, Malaya, Singapore, the Philippines, and now Burma. The logistics, as you can imagine for his forces, all the way in northern Burma were not good. The men were greatly fatigued by heavy fighting and a lack of everything, so Mutaguchi was content simply garrisoning the region. He deployed a single regiment, the 114th, in the Hukawang Valley, and the 55th in the Indau area, and the 56th in the Mitkinya area. By the way, I do apologize if I mispronounce some of these areas in Burma. I, I have to admit, 
it's probably the most challenging place when it comes to the names of places I've ever faced in my career. Muniguchi's men were plagued by Kachin levies, performing guerrilla warfare upon them. Soon he was forced to deploy his men to embark on vigorous patrolling north of the area of Mitsuginya, leaving his 18th division vulnerable to attrition and without much in terms of replacements for casualties. In the words of Private Fujino Hideo, Our enemy was not actually British, Chinese, nor Indians, but the Kachins. They were quicker than monkeys and talented in shooting. After the 8th month occupation, the punitive force at Samrabum suffered heavy damage and the casualties from the Kachin's guerrilla tactics. In the course of the campaign, the killed and wounded amounted to a great number. By February, the situation prompted Mutaguchi to redirect his attention towards the Kachin state, where he planned to send the 114th Regiment to attack Fort Hertz and Kalaka one of the important bases for which the Kachin levies operated. This also happened to be a place the Kachin levies screened for the building of the Lido Road. Thus, in order to save everything, Wavell had gone along with allowing Wingate to launch Operation Longcloth in an effort to prevent the offensive against Fort Hertz, the Lido Road, and the Hump Air Route. Now, the last time we were talking about the Chindits, they had scored a success attacking Pin Labu and demolishing major parts of the Bongyang Railway. Wingate was 10 miles north of Wuntho, and he established an HQ in the Bambui Tang Hills and was faced with a large decision to make. He could carry on across the Irrawaddy or retire back to India. Being Wingate, he carried on. However, while the Japanese at first were a bit bewildered by all the attacks, they soon figured out what kind of force they were facing and they set out to search and destroy them. The success of the railway demolition had thus created new perils. The Japanese were gathering in number, to the rear of the Chindits. The number one column in the southern force had survived multiple disasters, and they had blown up a railway bridge at Kyakthin and crossed the Irwadi at Tagang on their own initiative. By March the 10th, they had no time to lose, as the Japanese were in hot pursuit. The people of Tigyang welcomed the British and made boats available for their crossing. Ferguson and the number 5 column got across by nightfall just before a Japanese column appeared on the western bank to smash them. Learning the enemy had occupied Tigyang, Calvert with his number 3 column crossed 5 miles downriver. Then on March the 13th, they were ambushed. Calvert tried to hold the Japanese off with a rearguard action, while his main body crossed some islands midstream and luckily for the men, the Japanese did not press their attack or else the entire column likely would have been annihilated. The Japanese were uncertain of the numbers of this new enemy and they were being very cautious. Again, they had been fooled into believing the force facing them might be much larger than it actually was. Regardless of getting the majority to safety, seven of Calvert's men were killed and six were wounded who had to be left on the island. Calvert left a note with the six wounded men directed towards the Japanese commander asking him to treat the six wounded men in accordance with the code of Bushido. I myself am not too sure as to the fate of those men, but if he wrote in accordance with the code of Bushido, they would have been beheaded. Meanwhile, Wingate and the main body of the northern force, around 1,200 men, left Bamwe Tong and came to a major tributary of the Irrawaddy called Shueli on March the 17th. Here the river was so wide it made ropes and dinghies useless, and the crossing had to be made by boat. 
The danger was that the approach to the stream was over some paddy fields, where they could be easily spotted. On top of this, intelligence had revealed the far shore was held by units of the Burmese Liberation Army. When Wingate sent across an envoy to treat with them, the fearless warriors of the BLA promptly decamped. Wingate's men crossed at once, but yet again their mules gave them some trouble. Forty mules had to be left behind, while the rest were tethered to boats waddling across. They crossed during the night of March the 17th, and all of them got over by sunset. With Calvert and Ferguson well ahead of him, Wingate signaled the forces to march for the Gakti Viaduct so that they could demolish it, thus severing the Mandalay Lassio Road. Calvert turned southwards towards Mietissant, while Ferguson was ordered to rejoin Wingate's force. However, Calvert was unaware of this order, thinking Ferguson was actually backing him up as he approached Mitissant. Without the extra manpower, when he got to Mitissant, he knew he could not hope to take it head-on, so he prepared an ambush. He called the RAF in to bomb the town, while his men laid a trap along the Namiet River. A Japanese patrol walked right into the ambush and lost over 100 men. Calvert reported, We let fly with everything we had, and a lot of Japs could never have known what had hit them. It was one of the most one-sided actions I had ever fought in. For this great feat, they paid with the lives of around six Gurkha. Calvera's group continued on, receiving an airdrop on the 19th, a 10-ton dump of supplies that would be the largest drop of the entire expedition. With their supplies in hand, they trekked up the hills to prepare for their assault against Gaktik, but then they suddenly received an order to return to India. Calvert's force were too far south from the main body, and they would have to achieve the objective on their own initiative. Thus, he could not hope to ignore them. Calvert's men then turned back, but made sure to perform a demolition of a railway in the retreat. Now, Wingate had sent Calvert word that he should get out as fast as possible in order to bring the most survivors he could for, quote, We can get new equipment and wireless sets, but it will take 25 years to get another man. These men have done their job. Their expertise is at a premium. Calvert and the number three column reached the Chinwen on April the 14th, crossing it without opposition, and they were the very first out of Burma. Calvert and his column were the real success story of Operation Longcloth. As for Wingate, according to those in his company, he came into a down period for his bipolar cycle. Many accounts refer to him at this time as Luth Suspendu, highly strung, irritable, and irrational. During the crossing of the Irrawaddy, an officer had reported to Wingate that he had a snag, and apparently Wingate reacted by throwing himself to the ground in a cry of exasperation and despair. Wingate's biographer had this to say about the minor event. It was one among a hundred evidences of his impersonality at continual variance with his egotism. He left no record of exactly where he crossed the Irrawaddy. He seems to have concentrated on the negative and discounted the amazing run of luck the Chindits had enjoyed so far. Crossing the Chinwin, cutting the railway in 70 different places, crossing the Irrawaddy, 
all without significant losses. Suspecting that, in the words of one of his sergeants, there must be a catch somewhere. It seems Wingate did not know his men were at their limits, and he made the cardinal mistake of funneling his columns together, perfect to bring them into a death trap. Instead of spreading them over a wide area, he compressed them within 15 miles of each other, in a kind of peninsula surrounded by the Shueli and the Irrawaddy rivers, making it much easier for their Japanese pursuers to find them. The Chindits were also on a terrain mainly made up of paddy fields rather than jungle, thus they were particularly visible to the enemy. A Japanese spotter plane detected the number 5 column at one point, and basically all the Japanese needed to do was take the roads from Mitinson to Malé, where they could encircle them. But then suddenly Wingate realized his predicament and he ordered his men to break out of the Shueli Loop. This was to be easier said than done, however. The men were slow. Due to hunger, their boots were worn out. They had not had a supply drop in many days. The number 5 column had gone 48 hours without food, and it was becoming very apparent Wingate's forces were too large to be supplied by air. And just to explain a bit what I mean by too large to be supplied by air. Normally, all of these columns are separate, thus they're in smaller clusters, and thus a smaller number of planes have to endanger themselves venturing out into enemy territory to drop supplies. So as you can imagine, let's say you had a hundred aircraft, and you wanted to bring that hundred aircraft into the area to supply uh, this one large group, well, it's pretty visible when a hundred aircraft are all bunched up together to do so. But if you separate that hundred aircraft into like five clusters in different areas, well, that can sneak into enemy territory a lot better. Much like the Chindits themselves sneaking into the enemy territory, you have to remember, even though the Japanese air power in this part of the region wasn't that strong, still, any of these aircraft going over, it was dangerous work. Also, most of the time it's the same aircraft making the same drops to multiple groups, thus you are just kind of scheduling things, you know, they spread it out every few days or so, because they have very limited aircraft on hand. Thus, what I'm trying to say is when Wingate gathered all of his guys up, all together, he created basically an insurmountable task for the uh, air supply drops. They simply could not meet that demand. Now back over in Impal, the 4th Corps, whose role was to provide logistical backup for the Chindits, was greatly puzzled by Wingate's plans once he had crossed the Irrawaddy. They signaled to know what exactly his intentions were, and Wingate replied that his destination was the Kachin Hills from where he would launch an attack against the Lashio Bamo Road. The 4th Corps gently reminded Wingate that such a distance meant they would be unable to supply him by air, and they suggested he try instead to attack Shuibo, west of the Irrawaddy. It was clear they wanted him to go there, but Wingate responded the men could not get back across the Irrawaddy, as the Japanese had stolen all of their boats and they were patrolling the Axis routes. To this, the 4th Corps ordered him to end his operation, and to make their withdrawal back to India. It was actually the order that prompted Wingate to send his message to Calvert when he did, while he also sent word to Ferguson to rendezvous with him at Ba, where Wingate hoped to get all of his men a supply drop before making the long journey home. Ferguson's column were in really bad shape. They had no water. They had begun sucking the fluid from any green bamboo stems that they could find. 
They butchered their mules for meat, and they made stews of monkeys, rats, locusts, and cockroaches. They were ridden with lice and leeches. The leeches were particularly bad, as when a man pulled one off, the parasite's head would get stuck in the skin, creating an infected, oozing sore. Ferguson sent word via the radio to Wingate, stating a bitter Bible verse. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. It was a terrible mistake to send the Bible thumper Wingate such a message, as he quickly responded back with a quote from St. John's Gospel. Consider that it is expedient one man should die for the greater good of all people. It seems Wingate was overconfident about the supply drops having success prior by allowing some of his forces to attack Japanese garrisons while others oversaw aerial drops, had driven the Chindits to take everything for granted. At Ba, disaster struck. Wingate launched an attack, hoping the RAF would support him, but the pilots could not make out friend from foe, and they ended up flying over, dropping only a third of the necessary supplies. Ferguson finally rendezvoused with Wingate at Shakpin Chang River on March the 25th, and Wingate told the men he thought the Japanese commander was pressed to do everything he could to annihilate them all, just to save face at this point. Wingate held a conference with his officers where Ferguson recounted it as being, quote, The last reunion of a very happy band of brothers before setting out of the perilous homeward journey, which many of them did not survive. Knowing the Japanese would block their passage across the Irrawaddy, Wingate decided to try a bluff. He would march back to Inwa and cross at an identical point of the eastward crossing. They would have to kill all the remaining animals to make the traverse lightly armed, and once across, they would have to split up into small groups to try and sabotage more railway installations on their way back to India. Wingate arranged for the drops to be made south of the Shwele Loop, in the hopes of persuading the Japanese that that is where his brigade was going to be, so they could buy his men some more time. He sent the number one column eastwards to the Kachin Hills, basically to their doom to save the rest of his brigade. All the columns would endure a terrible march back to Inwa. The mules were slaughtered as they went, and the Japanese were always hot in their heels. Colonel Tomotoki Koba had set up three defensive lines between the Chindits and the border to India. The first position was at the Irrawaddy, the second along the Mu Valley, and the third was following the line of the Chinwin. Meanwhile, the Japanese who were hot in their trail, their purpose was to drive them straight into the trap. Wingate tried to toss the enemy off the scene by using feints and decoys, including ordering Ferguson's number 5 column to attack the village of Hintha, halfway between Ba and Inwa. The feints, it seems, worked as the Japanese never caught up to them, missing the opportune chance to trap the Chindits in the Shwele Loop. The main body of the Chindits reached the Inwa at 4pm on the 28th, and their luck had not run out on them. While the Japanese had stolen their boats over the Irrawaddy, they had neglected to do so at Shwele. Thus, the Chindits were able to gather up many boats and they crossed the river. The number 7 column was the first, followed by number 2, and then number 8. Number 8 was fired upon by the enemy halfway across. 
Unfortunately, the Japanese force was quite small and lacked heavy machine guns. Even so, their mortars and rifles and light automatics were enough to drive many of the Chindits into the jungles as the number 7 column was left on its own to flee for their lives. Wingate tried to secure a bivac 10 miles southeast of the Inwa and divided his columns into five dispersal groups arranging for supply drops. From that point on, they were on their own initiatives. Ferguson's number 5 column suffered heavily during the fight at Hintha and having lost his radio's equipment, they were on their own. Ferguson decided to take his men to the Kachin Hills, to the closest sanctuary that seemed to be available to them. But when they tried to cross the Shwelly, it turned into a nightmare. Many of his men were swept away during a flood, as were most of the mules. Forty-six men were abandoned on a sandbank in the middle of the river as the Japanese began to attack. Ferguson recalled, the decision which fell on me, there was as cruel as any which could fall on the shoulders of a junior commander. Ferguson's group staggered on, starving and dehydrated, and would limp back to Impal by April the 26th. Column number 5 had suffered tremendously. Only 95 survived, the ordeal out of 318 men. Column number 7 managed to get 150 of their men to China, and they flew back over to India. All the dispersed groups had terrible tales about atrocities committed upon them by the Japanese, or treachery on the part of Burman villagers. Men spoke of having to struggle to stay away, hiding in caves while the enemy hunted them down like dogs. Rice and buffalo meat were rare luxuries for them, more often than not, they ate pythons and nettles. But here we have to end this story. For the next time we come back to the Chindits, we will conclude Operation Longcloth and the daring retreat back to India by the Chindits. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And after all that, if you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on aspects about the attack on Pearl Harbor you might not know about. And again, just a friendly reminder to those who don't already know, I have a Patreon account myself. It can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel, and I want to thank all of you who've already joined up. It means a lot to me. Over there, I'm creating exclusive podcasts directed at subjects you want to specifically hear more about. So if that's interesting to you, please go check it out, or you can talk to me over at the Pacific War Channel Discord. I'm always listening. The onion-eating madman Wingate took his men dangerously into the fray, and many of them paid dearly for it. Their success brought the anger of the Japanese bearing down upon them, how many would survive the trek back to India?